afternoon, and welcome to the pilot episode of the Classic Bones podcast here on the Dogs Media Network. I am Kyle Golick with the living legend, Scotty Solomon. Uh, this is a first episode for us. This is a pilot. We're giving you a preview of what we anticipate to do throughout the 2023 football season. And joining me is Scotty Solomon. Scott, say hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everyone's having a pleasant weekend. And we thank you all for listening and taking the time to join in with Classic Bones. So we're going to jump into our first segment here, which is First Bones. And our First Bones is a simple introduction to who we are. We are going to be essentially your podcast DJs throughout the season. Uh, We plan on having some guests on the show. So we don't want to hype anyone up yet until we have everything concrete. But some of them are involved in some of the game's biggest and seminal moments in the history of the sport. Um, We also are going to have in this show several segments throughout uh you're going to have current bones so that way you get the idea of our takes of what's going on currently in the sport classic bones obviously takes a look at what the classic sense of the sport is you're also going to get in in a segment a lot of recaps and as we go on we may add in a whole lot of stuff so a little bit about myself i I'm currently for the Dogs Media Network. I concentrate on Penn State coverage. Uh, I am a national columnist for Mike Farrell Sports, and I'm a member of the Football Writers Association of America. Uh, I've been following college football on and off for the past four decades, and I am I am an enthusiast with the Big Ten, Pac-12, in Notre Dame football primarily covering those since 2008. Living legend, what do you introduce yourself to the audience today? Well, like you said, my name is Scott Solomon, and I am with the Dog Sports Media Network as well. Uh, And aside from publishing this podcast, I cover nationally for the dogs, but I have an emphasis on the five-time national champion University of Miami Hurricanes and the Florida State Seminoles. Uh, I also am a national columnist with Mike Farrell Sports and cover everything from Arizona to Wyoming. Wow, that that's Wyoming. That's going to Josh Allen days, eh? Well, you know, he had a very stellar career there, and he he, he was fun to watch. That he is, and Bill's Mafia loves him. So we're going to segue into our first segment. So we're going to jump into Classic Bones. So for Classic Bones... <laughs> We're going to discuss something that I set the internet on fire with, and that is this status that is blue blood. And college basketball over the years, you know, 
you've had schools like North Carolina, Kentucky, Indiana, Duke, Kansas, Ernest title of blue blood being a tradition rich program with championship caliber. And, you know, when UConn won their first, uh, not first, but their fifth national championship this past April, a lot of people said, "Is you you know should UConn be included in the blue blood conversation?" And that debate's going on in the, in the in the hardwood community, but in the football community, I decided to give my take on it with Mike Farrell Sports. Dogs Media Network also had a great article on the best programs of the last fifty years, and we kind of have a similar path, a little bit divergent path, but. I was tasked of rightness, and I look at blue blood as a status that can be gained or lost. I don't feel that if you are a blue blood, that is it forever. I feel, you know, there is a secure and unsecure status with it. And to me, a blue blood's a program that consistently shows decade after decade They're winning championships. They're winning big games. They're involved in the major picture of college football. There's not major gaps. So that's what kind of led my way onto the Blue Blood conversation. Now, Scott, do you agree or disagree with me on this? I agree with you. I agree it's a fluid list that's evolving every year. As we get new national champions, They're added to the list in some capacity, whether they're top tier, middle rung, or lower tier of the upper bloods. Um, I think that the way you have it cast out of secure versus insecure is going to be open to debate. And that's what we're here for. And we're going to debate those. And I, you know, part of the reason I go, I I chose that method and, If you go back 50 years in college football, you know, if we were having this conversation in 1973, I would bet programs such as Pitt, Minnesota, Georgia Tech would all be in this conversation. 50 years later, if I put those three programs, people are probably wondering, why am I writing this article? But it goes to show the fluid situation. When you look at Pitt, Pitt by 1973 has eight, they they claim eight of their nine national championships. Their ninth came in 76 with Tony Dorsett and crew. You know, you had, you know, Jock Sutherland as head coach, Marshall Goldberg, everyone's all American, Joe Schmidt, Mike Ditka. As tradition, a traditional Eastern independent as you could have, you know, 50 years later, I would say outside of their, their ACC title in, I believe it was 2021, Scott, when Pitt had it with Kenny Pickett. Yes. Pitt's been, has been a forgettable program since the Marino days. And I don't think that's a blue blood program. You look at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech, you know, up to 1973, you had three Hall of Fame coaches that defined the game of college football and for the Georgia Tech program for the Ramblin' Rack. You had John Heisman, 
you had William Alexander, and you had Bobby Dodd. You had, they claimed, I think the school in that period claimed four national titles. I think two other major selectors gave them a couple more. But since 1973, they have three 10-win seasons. They have um, very few and far between ACC success. I think they only have one major New Year's Six Bowl win. I think it was an Orange Bowl under Paul Johnson. This is not a blue blood program anymore. And then Minnesota, you know, from from 1907 to 1960, the program won seven national championships. They they haven't done anything of national relevance since then. So I look at it as a fluid situation. So this was what led to my criteria. When we look at the, and we're going to start with the easiest ones, because there's not a lot of conversation when we talk about programs who have secure blue blood status. I think the conversation gets fun as we go down the list. Um, I don't think anyone's going to question Alabama's place in college football. I mean, unless you are a rabid anti-Alabama fan, this is a no-brainer. I mean, between Wallace Wade, Frank Thomas, Bear Bryant, Gene Stallings, Nick Saban, you got a lot of success in a lot of national championships. Agree or disagree, Scott? I definitely agree. I mean, as much as I dislike Alabama, because they're always taking recruits from my backyard, um, but I, I really can't find any faults with that. That's that, that's a perfect situation as to what a blue blood team who's secure is. And, and then the next one I feel is just as strong as Alabama. They may not have as many of the national championships as Ohio State. Again, you can go back to the Ohio State program. Tell me the last time Ohio State had a prolonged period where they weren't nationally relevant. You have to go back prior to Paul Brown. And you're talking back in the 1940s. Paul Brown, Wayne Woodrow Hayes, Earl Bruce, John Cooper, even though he was much maligned for not beating Michigan, had Ohio State in the national picture and nationally relevant, especially in the mid-90s. Jim Tressel, Mr. Vest, another coach that, that put him right there, won, their, won a 2002 national championship, and they played in, I believe, two more national championships against Florida and – can't remember offhand, but again, right there every year, dominating the Big Ten – they had that down year with Fickle as interim, but they brought in Urban Meyer, and Urban Meyer won 90% of his games at Ohio State, dominated the Big Ten, won the first college football playoff. You know, Ryan Day has taken Ohio State to the national championship game, took him to the game in 2020, had a t- has had endured a couple hard losses, especially against Clemson. The one a lot of Ohio State fans question the fumble and the in the targeting call. 
And then you look at the uh, Georgia game this past January. Uh, that game is, in my opinion, one of the better games of all time. They they just got wounded, and Georgia was able to just take the game away from them. But again, this is a program. All the Heisman's, all the championships. Agree, Scott? <laughs> I agree. But I believe there's a big drop off between Alabama and Ohio State. Oh, I I, I agree. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, Ohio State is graded at the same like level between them because Alabama, you just have championships after championships, and even in the near misses, you look at like 1966. That's a classic example of Alabama, great team. Didn't get a share of the title. I think they went eleven and zero with Kenny Stabler. You know, with you, with Ohio State, you have that period post Woody Hayes to Jim Tressel, and I, I know you have a lot of mixed feelings about that Fiesta Bowl, Scott. We'll but, talk about it. <laughs> but you look at in between that period, how many Big Ten championships, and how many, you know. When you talk to folks that are that are of age, that remember college football being very regional, the Rose Bowl meant everything. And Ohio State played in that Rose Bowl quite often, and a lot of people forget because with the SEC having dominated the college football landscape since two thousand six, that. You know, the Big Ten throughout the 70s and in the 80s, even though it was the Big Two and the Little Eight in a lot of the cases, as they got into the 80s, Big Ten was a tough, a very tough league and considered the top conference in college football. Michigan was a top flight program. Ohio State was in there. Iowa under Hayden Fry. So it's, it's, you know, George Purley's left the Steelers to become Michigan State head coach. Uh, Dave McClain, who the Big Ten Coach of the Year is named after, was reviving a Wisconsin program. Lou Holtz took over the Minnesota job. Big Ten was a tough league in the 80s. Um, So, you know, it's hard to put that. I wouldn't – I would say Ohio State's a step down from Alabama, but that's not – it's not that much of a step. I think it's pretty much uh, a big step based upon the national championships won and the fact that Alabama just seems to be competing for a championship every year where Ohio State will have that one dumb loss that nobody expected that will throw them outside of the top four. Ohio State, yes, I'm still smarting from that call in the Fiesta Bowl in 2002 uh, when they won a national championship on the last play of the game. But it's it's something that uh, has taken years of therapy to go through, but uh, we finally accomplished it. Um, I just don't see them as being secure. Uh, they, they, they're, you never know what you're going to get from Ohio State on any given Saturday. I would, I would say from a secure standpoint, it's, 
not only decades of relevancy. I mean, national championships, I think, I think what's helped Alabama is no program since the advent of the college football playoff has capitalized on a college football playoff more than Alabama. And they've earned it. I mean, anytime they've gotten a redemption, they've, they've gotten it taken care of. But when you look at Ohio State stature, they're third in wins all time. They have the, they're, they're tied for the most Heisman Trophy winners. They've spent the most weeks in the AP poll. They have the second most consensus All-Americans. There is a level of dominance that Ohio State has accomplished that has earned that secure status. I mean, look at all, all, all the big bowl wins that they've had. Look at all the conference championships they've had. You know, the seven, you know, I believe the program has eight national championships. And, you know, I very few programs have more national championships than Ohio State. Ohio State is a good is is always a good program. I'm not knocking them. But I just don't believe that they're in the same category as Alabama. Alabama, I also look at players that make it to the NFL. It seems like Alabama players enjoy more success in the league than Ohio State players do. I don't know if they're prepared that way, uh, but especially in the last five to ten years, you have to look at the Alabama players performing in the NFL at a far greater rate than the Ohio State players. I would say when you look at the Ohio State guys, and I think there's a mix of both on both sides, success at the NFL level and from both programs. I, you know, you look at in the NFL, look at the wide receiver position, you know, uh, Jalen Waddell is one of the better receivers in the game. You look at, Minka Fitzpatrick, he's one of the best safeties in the game. You know, they, they produce very high-quality linemen in the NFL. That's there. Ohio State, between the Bosa brothers, you know, there was a time Michael Thomas was mentioned in that, that same vein at the wide receiver position. I mean, he did set the NFL all-time record for single-season receptions. Um. You look at Marshawn Lattimore, who was seen as one of the better cornerbacks. I think there's a lot of similar success with the uh, with the programs there. And when you take a gander, you know, at the end of the day, you get to Alabama's produced eight pro football Hall of Famers, and Ohio State has done ten. So I'm going to say that there's there's Ohio State and and uh, Alabama have produced some of the more impactful players in the NFL presently and all time. I'm not going to give one the edge over the other. Um, I look at what the, those programs do, and they're they're right they're right there for me. You know, you can make a compelling case for either Alabama has 
the, the championship advantage. Ohio State definitely has a lot of key ingredients to make the conversation interesting. But let's add another team into the, into the mix and see where that is. Let's look at Oklahoma. And this is a program, Scott. Again, Venables had a tough 2022 season. But the transfer portal really hurt his squad. I, I, you know, when he, I think of teams of late that have been impacted in college football, the transfer portal completely gutted that program. And Venables has said prior to the 2022 season that, you know, he's working on establishing a foundation and building the right program, something that Bud, Barry, and Bob, if you look at the great B coaches in Oklahoma history, have done, where Brent has come up short and didn't realize it, and this is something that I attacked Lincoln Riley a little bit on, is a lot of those, you know, meat and potato positions, your your lines, he never really got them into a very good spot. Defensively, never recruited at a level that was championship level. So when a lot of those plus pieces, like quarterbacks, receivers, departed, Oklahoma was gutted. And... Outside of last year, when you start looking at Oklahoma historically, you know, outside of the 90s, which was they had to recover from the Barry Switzer stuff of the late 80s. Gibbs wasn't the right coach. Schnellenberger wasn't the right fit. I mean, who remembers that freak show of a year in 1995? And John Blake wasn't the right guy and it was Bob Stoops who came in outside of that decade there in the nineties, Oklahoma, you know, whether it was Barry Switzer, Chuck Fairbanks, Bud Wilkinson, this is a program that has consistently performed as good with any program in the, in the, in the history of the game. I like Oklahoma better than I do Ohio state. I have to agree with you on, on your selection of Oklahoma. Uh, I remember the Barry Switzer teams, and they were very good, very fun to watch. They almost came to the Orange Bowl every year. Uh, and they had, uh, in their recruiting brochures, come to Oklahoma and spend New Year's in Miami because mm-hmm. that's how many Orange Bowls they've been into. And uh, it's... It's it's a historical club that they've had, and they've also put together quite a recruiting department. And I, I I have a lot of respect for Oklahoma. I lost a lot of respect for Brent Venables when he took a shot at Mario Cristobal at the media days, uh, just because we're not in the same conference and we're not playing each other. So I don't know why that had to come out. And that was but, unnecessary from Venables. I agree with you on that. But he was a great defensive coach at Clemson, put some great defensive teams together, but he's just not doing it in Oklahoma. They just missed out on a big recruit last night. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't 
pin the hedges on one one recruit with them. I really think they've done a be- much better job building the foundation. One of the things Venables brought up at media days was the Oklahoma rebuild was more than a small rebuild. It was down to the to the A frame and the concrete that is the is the foundation. Like this was a tougher and bigger rebuild. You know, this program is entering very much uncertain times. You know, you don't know where the program is built at. And it's about to go into the toughest conference currently in the game in the SEC next year. And your schedule isn't going to – their schedule is not going to get any easier. You're not going to – you know, Oklahoma has enjoyed, you know – Years of playing programs like, and I know Missouri's now in the SEC, but they had Missouri, Kansas, Kansas State, Colorado for a while was in the Big Eight. Nebraska was in the Big Eight, and Barry beat Tom Osborne 12 out of 16. Iowa State's there. So you're going from a history of that to now, you know, the Crimson and Cream, they're as historic as many of these other programs. The SEC is going to take care of them, but you you better believe you're, they're going to see on a regular basis Texas, Texas A&M, Arkansas, LSU, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida. Not all those teams every year, but they're going to see if their fair share of that. And it's a lot different having to take on some of those opponents in a conference schedule altogether versus, oh, we we have a, a week here where we're going to Kansas, we're going to Lawrence. Maybe this is a this is a you know, we don't have to put the pedal to the metal sort of week. It's gonna be a tougher week. What I didn't like about his comments to Cristobal is look look, Brent, you are a losing coach. You haven't won anything on your own. Don't talk until you've earned the right to talk. And if you are at a six and seven record, you don't talk. You keep your mouth shut. I agree. Not only were they six and seven, but he he, he forgets that they got rolled by Texas 49 nothing. I'll tell you what, Oklahoma fans ain't going to forget that. No. But, I think Oklahoma is making a big mistake going into the SEC, though. I I agree, and you know, a very unpopular opinion I have is I feel Oklahoma is more suited and situated to be a Midwestern program. You know, I've always felt that they would have been better off jumping to the Big Ten. I think the Big Ten, and I know Nebraska's had some talks over the years, whether it was Tom Osborne with Joe Castiglione, of trying to get Oklahoma. And Oklahoma had some political pressure with Bedlam and Oklahoma State. They almost left for the Pac-12 back in – I think it was 2010, 2011, which would have made him the Pac-16. 
It would have been six Big 12 schools that would have gone up, which would have included Texas and Oklahoma. That never came to fruition. And a lot of people think I'm nuts when I say this, but Oklahoma, much like Texas, wanted out of the Big 12 in the worst way. History is showing us this. For them to be in the SEC, I think this is a tougher journey. I think their fans are going to they're going to revel being in that conference. They're going to enjoy, I think, a lot more heavyweight matchups. But what I think they're going to go through is, you know, with when they enjoy those ten and two, eleven and one Big Twelve championship seasons, I think those seasons are going to be fewer and far further between. I think they're going to have to say, hey, there's going to be some nine and three seasons in here. And it's not nine and three is bad. It's just, hey, we took some L's to maybe LSU and, you know, we beat Texas A&M. We lost to Texas and we we took, had to take on Florida or Georgia or, or, or something of that nature. And we've gone nine and three. I think Oklahoma will be fine, but I think they would have been be- much better served had they ended up in the Big Ten. I think Oklahoma is going to not go nine and three. I don't. Th- I think that's very ambitious uh, for their first year in the SEC once they get there. I think that they're going to be running into travel. They're going to be running into crowds like they haven't seen in their own conference. And I think that it's it's going to be a tough situation for them to get used to. Traveling from Norman, Oklahoma to Gainesville, Florida uh, is is a lot longer than just sticking around in the Midwest and taking a two-hour flight. Yeah, and, you know, and I hate one of my all-time favorite moments is the Baker, we'll refer to as the Baker Mayfield gesture moment again in Kansas. By no means would the SEC condone that. But the other aspect of that is, you know, unless they're playing Vanderbilt, and, you know, you go throughout the rest of that league, outside of Vanderbilt, those crowds are in, are, are intense. You know, they get up for those games. So I don't know, but I think historically Oklahoma's status is secure for now. I think they're, they're they're afforded a mulligan for last season. I mean, again, I, you, we can point to a lot of mulligans afforded to some of these secure teams and and say, hey, why are you know why are their status still secure? You know, one year shouldn't define them. I think when you do a blue blood status check, this is something that has to be over a prolonged period of time. I. I I feel it's not something like, oh, they had a losing season. You lose your status. That's that's a little bit not fair. But it's one of those that if you go 20 years without really doing anything, we need to talk. And that's what we'll end up going when we get down to the not secure blue bloods. But my final secure blue blood is, is the men of Troy from Southern Cal. And... Look, God bless Pete Carroll and Reggie Bush. And I think, Scott, we need to establish some ground rules for our podcast. And I, I, ho- I, I hope you agree on this, is 
I don't believe in res- uh, wins that have been rescinded or stripped. I don't believe in stripped Heisman trophies. I don't believe in all that. If I watched a, a game or a ceremony or team celebrate a championship with these two eyes, that happened. And we will recognize that on this program. What are your thoughts on that? I definitely agree. I think Reggie Bush should be given back his Heisman. He should be up there on stage with everyone every year. USC won the national title. I watched the game. I saw them leave with the trophy. They should keep the trophy. Uh, um, but then again, this is the NCAA we're talking about. Brian Bosworth called them the National Communists Against Athletes. Yeah, and, and that's going to be their th- that's going to be their title in, in perpetuity. I hope Bosworth got that copyrighted. He should and should try to make some royalties. But where I go with USC as the last secure team is, and I say God bless the Pete Carroll era is. That was a dominant era if there ever was one in the 2000s decade. In my opinion, the Pete Carroll USC Trojans in the, from 2000 to 2009, that defined that era of college football like no other. I mean, you look from 2002 when it, when it, when it started to take off to 2008, I believe, was their last Rose Bowl. And I think that was against Penn State as well you know that seven season stretch they won four or five rose bowls you know they won a couple more new year six bowl games they won two national championships they played for a third the heisman trophies of Leinart and bush i mean that team was an iconic team historically Carson Palmer was in that group, wasn't he? He kicked it all off in 2002. He won the Heisman Trophy. He beat out uh, another Nittany Lion, Larry Johnson, for the award. Who also was very deserving. Well, with Larry Johnson, the problem that year was it was a split Big Ten vote because you had Larry Johnson of Penn State and Brad Banks from Iowa. So... When you have a split in the conference vote like that, sometimes that can cost you, and it did. But fortunately for um, uh, for uh, USC, they were able to capitalize on that. But when you look at historically USC, you know, every decade, and I, I did this the. They've appeared in at least, and we're not counting the 2020s yet, because we're only three seasons in. And 2020 for COVID was as jacked up of a year as there ever was one. But you look at every decade for USC in the 2010s, and that was considered a down decade, they participated in multiple New Year's Six Bowls. And you go through each of the decades, you're counting multiple Rose Bowls, multiple New Year's Six Bowls. This is a tradition-laden program. I, when we get to the, one of the programs that's not secure, we will make a comparison between the two. But 
one of the reasons I still feel USC secure is even with a little bit of a down era with the Clay Helton era that didn't exactly turn out the way all they expected to. I mean, he never really fully leveraged that Rose Bowl win. And again, I'm bringing up Penn State again, but that they, USC seemingly has Penn State's number in these conversations. Um, but he got that Rose Bowl win. He went back to the Cotton Bowl against Ohio State. Couldn't win that game. But he never was able to get that program going. And, I mean, you look in between Carroll and now head coach Lincoln Riley, they tried Lane Kiffin. They tried Steve Sarkeesian. Clay Helton. Didn't all work out for, for them. I mean, think about it. Sarkeesian's coach in Texas – Kiffin's at Ole Miss, so it's not like they had horrible coaches in there. It's just I don't know where that USC program was. And, like, you know, Kiffin had to take care of mop-up duty from the Carroll punishments, but I don't think he was afforded the proper time. Sarkeesian was a personal disaster in that time frame. And I just think Clay Helton, you know, much like when Ed Orgeron had that little mini period there as interim coach. I don't think he was the right answer in that time frame. I thought Ed Orgeron was going to get serious consideration for the job, but they never really took him seriously. He was a good interim coach, but they really didn't feel he had the vibe for Southern California. He And I don't think he did. And, you know, I think he was a good coach, and I think he was good for that the situation that he was in. He won six out of eight games for the Trojans in that interim basis. But I, I feel, you know, even his dream gig, you know, and he has a few gigs that you can probably point at that. Um, I think your Miami Hurricanes would be one, but I think the one that he had gotten, LSU, I think showed that, he wasn't mature enough to run a majorly successful program. I really like Coach O. I mean, I remember when he was down here as a, as a position coach, everyone loved him. I, I, I think he's he's got the moxie. He's got the, the, the talent to be able to coach. One of his problems, I think, that he had at LSU was the staff that he put around him. I don't think he had the the greatest position coaches and coordinators that he possibly could have gotten at Louisiana State. You know, well, they're a big program. Well, here's the here's the rub. Now, you look at LSU. He found gold with Joe Brady. Okay. And Joe Brady had worked with Joe Moorhead at Penn State. I know I continue to bring up the Nittany Lions, but there's a lot that has to do with, with that in his development. I believe after Penn State, Brady went to the New Orleans Saints and worked with uh, Sean Payton. And my, in my uh, opinion, Sean Payton's one of the best offensive innovators of the 21st century. And if you watch this LSU teams, like when you watched LSU in 2018 – 
I saw a lot of the same concepts the Saints were running there. And Burrow was learning. But when Burrow got it, and they had the – got to think about it. They had Joe Burrow in 2019. Burrow, Justin Jefferson, and Jamar Chase. That's – I don't – that's I, – I, as you can tell in my tone – I don't know if any team ever's had that kind of staff quarterback and receivers like that and did the stuff that they did. I mean, Burrow completed 76% of his passes, had over 60 touchdowns responsible for. You know, I, I, I think there was that perfect situation. And when, when they went to the NFL, when Brady decided to – to move on himself, I believe he went to the Carolina Panthers with uh, Matt Rule. You know, he tried to roll with Steve Emsecker, who, who, who was in his, I believe, second or third year in at LSU. And I think we found out pretty quickly how much of the brains was Brady, how much of the talent that they had, and you also had to keep in mind, I think. If I'm not mistaken, Jamar Chase did much like a lot of guys did for the COVID year, opted out. So that hurt them. Um, but yeah, you're right. He he he. Ne- I don't know if I I think the powder keg that is LSU football, Scott. I don't think he was given a fair opportunity, but. When you have the sheer amount of talent that LSU gets, I don't think you're afforded much opportunities to have a big regression or back year. I agree with that. That, That's a true and accurate statement. Um, I remember the LSU years when they had Leonard Fournette and they had OBJ and they had uh, Jarvis Landry. You know, how do you not win with that with with, with that yeah. set of triplets? Yeah, it, it boggles my mind that that LSU, and we'll talk about them in a bit, uh, hasn't won more. But with USC, I just feel the consistency, decade after decade, keeps them secure. And I don't think they're in any position as of right now, especially with Lincoln Riley, especially with the reigning Heisman Trophy winner to lose their blue blood status. No, I really like USC. I think that they have a rich history from John Robinson, John McKay, uh, those great teams they had in the 70s and the 80s, uh, Charles White running the football. Um, Student body left, student body right. Yeah, I mean, th- those those were just great plays. And it was an innovative offense at the time. Uh, I think that uh, USC definitely is a secure blue blood. So that concludes the, the secure blue bloods. But now we have blue bloods. And this is what I want to preface before I get a bunch of tags on social media, a bunch of folks that want to you know, storm the gates of my home and tar and feather me and burn me in effigy on my house. These next four, I can, we consider, I consider blue bloods, but I feel that their status is not secure for a litany of reasons. And so it's not that they're 
going to lose it after this year. But if they continue to trend downward or not fulfill any sort of championship, they may lose their status. And now one of the things that I had wished the guy that did the, my graphic the for the blue blood status check would have ordered these better, but unfortunately he didn't, but we'll go through them the kind of the way how I intended. And I think the strongest of the not secure blue bloods at this moment is Michigan. And with the Wolverines, you have back-to-back playoff berths. They seemingly figured out the Ohio State hex. Part of the reason I have them not secure, and look, I'm going to throw some shade at Michigan right now. Number one, Jim Harbaugh is just like his mentor, Bo Schembechler. He can't win a major bowl game. That's hurting that program hard. I believe it, Michigan, he's only won one bowl game. It was his first one in a Citrus Bowl. After that, I think he's 0-6 or 0-7. I can't remember. I think it's 0-6 in bowl games. And that includes four New Year's Six Bulls and two playoff bursts. That hurts. And when you look at the whole 2000s together, from 2000 on, you know, that that, that 2000 Orange Bowl for the 1999 season with Tom Brady winning that against Alabama in the Orange Bowl seems like a, a, a rare occurrence because if you go from 2000 season onward, the only bowl, New Year's Six Bowl win by Michigan was in Brady Hoke's first season in a Sugar Bowl against Virginia Tech. Lloyd Carr wasn't able to get it done in Rose Bowls at the tail end of his career. He went to three of them. And unfortunately, he went two of those, I believe, were back-to-back. They went up against, in my opinion, two of the iconic teams of – well, I wouldn't say the two iconic teams, but two of the iconic – an iconic figure in an iconic teams of the two thousands between losing the USC and then losing to Texas with Vince Young. So it's hard to really blame them for that. But when you look at it here, if you go back to the end of Bo Schembechler and you started 1990, Michigan, has won a total of three New Year's Six Bowl games. Okay? They won the 1993 Rose Bowl. That was that weird Gary Moeller 9-0-3 season. They won the 98 Rose Bowl against um, uh, Washington State for the national championship. Excuse me, they won four New Year's Six Bowl games. So, let me, they won that Orange Bowl with, uh, against Alabama, who had Sean Alexander, and that was Tom Brady's finest Michigan moment. And then they won that 
uh, Sugar Bowl against uh, Virginia Tech. So it's not like they're lighting up the bowl picture. And to me, a blue blood wins those games more often. I'm going to throw a little bit more shade on it. And I understand the trophy isn't cut in half in Ann Arbor, but they've only won a half a title since 1950. We're talking 70, over 70 years. Whether you want to call it a half or a whole, that's not blue blood to me. Scott, what are your thoughts on Michigan? I don't like Michigan at all. I, I, I don't <laughs> think that they're blue blood. I don't think Bo Schembechler was all that in a bag of chips. Uh, I think that he was he won a lot of games because he was there for a long time. You keep a guy in the same program for a while, he's gonna he's bound to win some games, but he never won the big one. He didn't. I mean, outside of Ohio State sixty nine, what is Bo Schembechler's biggest win? You know, he doesn't have many signature wins for a coach who's been at that school. Uh, in perpetuity, they still talk about Bo like he's God. What's he done? I mean, you—he's five and twelve in bowl games. Okay, that doesn't help. Grant you, he played in arguably the sport's biggest rivalry, the game. In a ten-year war, they milk that for all it is worth. You know, I you know when I look at Bo, like, and I have the deepest respect. Bo's one of my all-time favorite, you know, coaches ever because it's a great read. He's very matter of fact about about things. You know, this is a guy that you know he won a few of his Rose Bowls. I mean. You know, I, I, you know, you couple them against USC, but it's not like something that jumps at you that goes. The biggest things that you talk about with Bo Schembechler, losing bowl record, the 10 year war, the 1973 tie against Ohio State. You know, you don't talk about, you know, oh, they, they beat, you know, Tom Osborne and Nebraska in the Fiesta Bowl in 1985. You know, you don't talk about a lot of that stuff. I mean, probably one of their dubious distinctions is Michigan decided to play BYU in the Holiday Bowl in 84, and that's what helped BYU get their only national championship. It gave credibility. Uh, it gave credibility. Um, you know, I just – when I think of Bo, I mean, great coach and, like, for what he was, but again, lack of championships. And when you continue to go through the history of Michigan, you know, I mean, I mean, Oosterbahn won his title in 48, and that's your last, you know, undisputed title, you know, 
you know, Christ, Fritz Chrysler has claims for the 47 title, but you start going through, you know, you're going back to their dominant era. You're going back to the beginning of the 20th, I mean, the 20th century with the uh, hurry up fielding Yost when the game was at its pretty much primitive state. And they were just starting the concept of the bowl game in the early 1900s. I mean, they are the winningest program, and I know Michigan fans they're they're look they're hoping they win 11 this year so they can be the first to a thousand. But at the end of the day, you know, I, you got to win national championships to me to be securely a blue blood. I mean, the fact that they're forever consistent. Get, keeps them a blue blood. But if you want to secure your status, it's not being the all-time winningest program because, look, L programs have wins against some weird schools. Stuff like, you know, you know, you know, surgeons and dentists and Ann Arbor High School, some that Michigan has. And I think Michigan has a losing record against Cornell. Um, but you gotta win championships, Scott. The biggest problem I had with your list was that you went back to the stone age of football to start the grade. I mean, these teams in 48 and 49, the Minnesota teams that you referenced, none of our viewers know that. Nobody that's listening to this podcast is going to know that. So that's interesting trivia that you gave them that they can burn their friends with and show that they know something about college football. But I think you really have to look at the modern era and start from there and then make your determinations. Well, my thing is when I when people when people say all time, I'm a very literal person. So I'm going to go back to Rutgers, Princeton, 1869 and go forward. Um, I'm not going to say, hey, we're going to start the 20th century. I'm not going to start in 1936 when the AP poll came about. And look, I'm not going to start in 1998 when the BCS was invented. I'm not going to do 2014 when the college football playoff. When we talk all time, all time to me is Princeton and Rutgers, 1869. And I would hope that this podcast, you know, we can shed the, some light on the different eras and explain, you know, the, this game is always evolving. You know, part of the reason why, and this is going to be part of the reason the next school will come up, I'm, and you probably know what it is, Scott, is, you know, you know there comes a point where, there's a relevancy check. And part of that is, are you able to consistently win championships? And I'm trying to look at things on a, on a level playing field, which is tough to do. But what I'm also trying to do is I'm not, I think you, anyone in, this is just me getting on a soapbox here. I think anyone can find a podcast put it on and they can give a modern take and they can say, you know, you haven't seen this ever. And there's probably some credence to what they're saying. What I'm hoping, what our differentiator is for our podcast is 
you're getting the whole story. You know, if we're if we're gonna like when we talk about Georgia, probably in a few weeks, we're gonna bring up Bernie Beerman's nineteen thirty four to thirty six Minnesota teams. I mean, it's not gonna be the whole podcast. I mean, there's only so much information we can glean from that, and that's readily available to us. But you're gonna get that, and you're gonna get the whole kit and caboodle. So that's my soapbox, Scott. You see, football to me started once they wore padded helmets. When they put the leather helmets on, that really wasn't football because they weren't breaking bones. I just think that if we're going to go back into that era, then we have to really look at the level of competition that they played. And I think it's... You had New York Institute of Technology, who was one of the better teams in the 30s and 40s, playing Canisius High School. Yeah. You got, you know, here in, here in Pittsburgh, Washington and Jefferson played Cal to a 0-0 tie in the Rose Bowl. You have Carnegie Mellon University, which most people, would, if they know their football, is Carnegie Tech. Um, which was a, a football power in the 20s and 30s. I think that's what's going to make make this fun. And I, uh, you know, part of me is, and this comes from my love of baseball, is what you know. Obviously, things have improved when you look at baseball equipment, when you look at the field, when you look at the conditioning and nutrition, and all that. And I think that's what makes this 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 interesting is how. You know, no matter how sophisticated this game gets, what's beautiful about it is there's only so many combinations you can do 11 on 11. And that's what we're going to highlight. But for the sake of our audience, I do think why I feel Michigan, and we'll I'll tie up Michigan like this. If Harbaugh can finally break through, not only just with Ohio State, but also in the in the bowl picture, win a playoff game and potentially win a championship. You know, it's like with John Elway, and I think you and I'm going to use this analogy, Scott. And you know this from covering the NFL in your time as as a writer. John Elway up till 1996, great quarterback, Hall of Famer, you know. He got to the Super Bowl three times, and it just—if they weren't competitive games, they just got—they just got beaten and blown out. And when Elway won those two Super Bowls to end his career, he went from being like all time, like a like a great quarterback that was going to the Hall of Fame, to now there was this romanticizing. He took the Broncos to five Super Bowls and won two, and there was a whole different narrative. And I think when Michigan wins a national championship, I think what will get them back into the secure realm for me is you've won a national championship recently, and you did it in an era, and I'm hoping they do it. Maybe not this year, but when the playoff expands to 12 teams, because it'll be one of those statements that you say you did it on the field and you did it probably the hardest way in the history of the game. Well, I think that sums it up pretty well. I don't know what I can add to that. 
Well, I'm going to let you kick off this next one that I felt is a blue blood, but their status is not secure. And I think you're going to enjoy this one. Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a blue blood. If you go back to the 1700s when they first started playing football, um, it's an iconic institution. They've won a lot of national championships. They've put a lot of players in the NFL. They've won a lot of Heisman trophies. Uh, the last 10 years really haven't been so good to them. Uh, but uh, Brian Kelly, I thought, was turning that program around. Uh, but then he left, and I don't think Marcus Freeman is going to be able to put it in the status of where Lou Holtz had it, for example. Um, I, I still don't believe in their 1988 national championship. Um, Elaborate you know, on that one. Well, if you look at the 1988 season, Miami – came into that game as number one and Notre Dame came in as number four and the game was played in South Bend and with 45 seconds left Cleveland Gary scored the apparent game winning touchdown but they ruled it a fumble and Mike Stonebreaker picked up the fumble the the alleged fumble and that was ball game you know, we spoke to Cleveland a few weeks ago, and he'll be a guest on one of our episodes. But this is the 35th anniversary of that championship. And it makes me sick to watch Cleveland Gary, who I went to college with and knew very well, was a very good friend of mine. He scored that touchdown. The ball crossed the line before the ball went out. And the ground cannot cause a fumble. So that's a cheap Notre Dame title that is counted in the record books, but you're not going to find me counting it in South Florida. One of the things that I got criticism from, from Notre Dame fans, and look, I have a tremendous respect for the school. Their last New Year's Six Bowl win was in 1993 and they played the Cotton Bowl and beat Texas A&M. And I think since then they're 0-10 or 0-11 in New Year's Six Bowls. When they saw that USC status was secure and their program status was not secure, they lost their minds and they said, how can USC be secure and we're not? And my response to them is, in the last 30 years, you're, oh, a couple things. 0-10 or 0-11 in New Year's Six Bowls. USC has won 9 or 10 New New Year's Six Bowls. I believe it's 9. You know, they've been to a few more of them as well. They've lost a few Cotton Bowls um, in in that time frame, and they lost that what a lot of people consider the greatest college football game ever, the 2006 Rose Bowl. But they've gone, I believe, nine and three in New Year's Six Bowl games. You know, that's nine and three is a lot better than 0 and 9 or 0 and 10, whichever way you want to go. They all, USC also had 
arguably one of the sport's most iconic teams and dominant runs in the mid-2000s with Pete Carroll. I don't think this is even a contest. You know, the fact that Notre Dame fans want to bring that up, you know, I'm all for it, but you have to explain to me your poor record against ranked opponents since the Lou Holtz era. You have to explain the lack of a national championship since 1988 because, look, 35 years, that's a long time. We're not we're not talking, oh, they've gone 10 years. It's okay. This is 35. This is Notre Dame. This is the what people will say is the most valuable brand in the sport. How are how are you a blue blood if you know, and I understand you could bring up, you know, from the college basketball sense, um, Kansas, I believe, went 46 years in between national championships. Again, I would say the difference between that and when you're you're justifying Kansas versus uh, Notre Dame is Kansas has to go through a 64-team tournament to win a national championship. Okay. Um, Notre Dame, you just got to be Notre Dame and not lose. And I, I, I... I just did a quick check. It was 36 years. I knew it was either 46 or 36. Couldn't remember. But what I'm trying to get at is it's, 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 it's apples and oranges there. For Notre Dame, you know, poor ranked wins, lack of bowl wins, no championships. You got to get it done. I don't know if Marcus Freeman's the the guy. I hope he is. But I just – I think they're beginning to slip, and I think and feel this way. They want to remain independent. If you want to be independent and you have these conferences that are starting to form, it's like the Big Ten's a mega conference at this point. The SEC is going to counter at some point. If I'm a TV network paying money, is Notre Dame going to get that access to those games? They probably will. And there's something about that inventory. But now you've got to ask this question. If you're the Big Ten and you have 20, 24 teams and you want to play a 10-game conference schedule, your two games that you have out of conference, is Notre Dame worth that one spot? Or are those two games money games? And if you understand, you know, for the listener, and I know, Scott, you probably understand this, a money game is when, you know, Penn State pays – Delaware to come up from the Delaware Valley for a 40 to nothing licking. And then, you know, Delaware funds their athletic program. Penn state gets the money for the home game and everyone wins. I I think that's, and that's where Notre Dame has to be careful. Scott. The problem that I have 
with Notre Dame historically is them continuing to be an independent and being able to play lower tier teams to pad their record. Because you can literally take a blind dog with a note in his mouth on some of these Notre Dame teams and and they'll coach them to to a national championship because they don't play anybody. They play USC, but they, they really need to get into a conference and start playing some teams historically on a yearly basis that are going to produce those tough rivalries. And here's the thing. They played in a conference one year. They played during the COVID season in, against in the ACC, and they made the ACC championship game. So this mythology of needing to stay independent died, in my opinion, when they decided to – well, we're going to join, we're going to go full time the ACC this year, and then bow out. To me, they're they're no longer this pristine independent history. Join a conference; it doesn't exist anymore, guys. It's hard to survive as an independent, but it's even harder to have respect for an independent because they don't want to play anybody. Well, and it's it's when you look, and this is the other aspect. When you remember that this is college sports, okay, and I'm going to say this loosely because anymore, college football is almost being professionalized. But if we keep it to the to the, the, the narrative that college athletics is 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 for for the students and whatnot, that includes all sports and. Notre Dame is definitely not independent in ice hockey. They're in a big 10 and Scott with your ACC following knows where Notre Dame is in those sports too. So in my opinion, this independence for football is like unnecessary, narcissistic and holier than thou and completely unnecessary. And I think it's to the detriment of their program. The fact that both Michigan and Notre Dame don't play each other every year, considering the proximity Ann Arbor and South Bend are, one, are, are to each other, is is a mind boggling. I mean, that I I grew up. That was, in my opinion, one of the best early season rivalry games that was out there. You don't have it anymore, and you don't. They have a rich TV contract. So they can beat up on on teams that are inferior to them. I don't want to watch that. Well, i i will I will defend Notre Dame's schedule just a bit. I mean, they do play pretty much a full Power Five schedule. I mean, I think they still got Marshall on there, and I and and every once in a while they do. But you look at the rotation of opponents; they have to play six ACC opponents, and they they. You know, they have long ties with Navy and uh, Southern Cal and Stanford and Michigan State. You know, I, I feel I always feel Notre Dame plays a quality schedule. I just think they're at a point where where it's the super conferences in the TV networks are going to be the ones that shut out Notre Dame, and that's what's going to force them into a conference. I think that's going to happen in the next decade. 
Yeah. With all this realignment, uh, they're they're destined to go somewhere. It's just really a question of where. They need to find a home. And by the way, Rudy was offsides. <laughs> I knew that was coming out. So my next not secure program is Texas. And to me, this is, you know, if you know the history of college football, you know, the Texas program from the old Southwest Conference, that was an odd fit in the Big 12 to begin with. In my opinion, Texas destroyed the Big 12 that you and I know it is, Scott. I mean, kudos to Brett, uh, Brett Yarmack for uh, getting that conference identity again. But I think they're going to, to a place now in the SEC where they belong. Historically, I mean, you look at that program, it's the who's who of college football, whether you're talking about Dana Bible, Daryl Royal, you know, James Street, Earl Campbell, Ricky Williams, Mac Brown, Vince Young. All that's there. Part of why they're not secure for me at the moment is when you look at the level of play that Texas has had since 2010, Mac Brown for most of the 2000s, Texas was winning 11 and 12 games a year. Great quarterback play. Great backs, defenses, everything. That that BCS national championship game against Alabama at the Rose Bowl, I think changed that program psyche for the worst. You know, since 2010, uh, Texas has, I believe, five or six losing seasons. Let me let me look here. They have. They have one, two, three, four. They have five losing seasons. So when you have that, you know, that's it's it's uncharacteristic. And you know, I look at, you know, throughout their history, the you know, the the eighties weren't exactly kind to that program. Um I know Fred Akers you know, he had a few teams there that, you know, I think a 77, they lost that Cotton Bowl to Notre Dame. That was Notre Dame's national championship, Joe Montana over, I believe, Earl Campbell. But you look at the 83 squad, that's a team that was really close, really close to it. Scott, what are your thoughts on on Texas. Uh, I'm a proponent of Texas. I think that if you take out the Tom Herman and Charlie Strong years, I think that you've got some good recent material to work with. Their overall body of work for my time that I want to look at, I think that that they're they're pretty competitive. And I think Sark has them ready to play some ball this year. 
Oh my God. Yes. I think they got the pieces on both sides of the ball. And I, I, I would like to see a good Texas. Now I'm going to ask you this question, Scott, and I want you to be unbiased for a moment. So obviously, you know, the 1983 um, hurricanes won the national title, but the they benefited by a Georgia upset over Texas in the Cotton Bowl. You know, John Lastinger had a nice touchdown run towards the end of that ball game that sealed it for the Bulldogs. If Texas would have held off against Georgia in the 84 Cotton Bowl, do you think Miami would have deserved a share of the title that year? Because Texas was undefeated. They were number two, and they were dominant that year. No one came close to in the Texas that season. Texas wins that game. They're the national champions. Oh, I like I, – I was hoping you were going to say that. And we're going to conclude our Not Secure Blue Bloods with, with Nebraska – And to me, and this is just my take, and Scott, you've written thousands of articles. I'm approaching that milestone myself. Maybe not exactly thousands, but I would say a thousand wouldn't be out of the realm. And I think over the years, you've probably written some great pieces, and you're like, I wish I would have said this line in an article, right? A lot of times, yes. So in this Blue Blood article, one of the lines I wish I would have added, I I mentioned about, I used the Minnesota analogy with Nebraska, but the line I wish I would have added, because what got, got me killed was, how do you include Nebraska considering their last 25 years and not say they're they're still blue blood, still somewhat secure, even though they're not secure. The line I wish I would have added is is due to the fact of Nebraska being so nationally irrelevant. Because, grant you, they played in a few Big Twelve title games there with Bill Callahan and Bo Pelini, and Bo Pelini took advantage of a down Big Ten when Nebraska got in and played for a few Big Ten titles. For the most part, and I think you would agree on this, Scott, Nebraska's been irrelevant since Osborne's final game uh, in 1998. They did play Miami in that 2002 national title game at the Rose Bowl, the O2 Rose Bowl for the 2001 season. Terry Bowden has said many times when he was covering a game, doing a pregame with John Saunders, like he's watching the warmups. And when it went to break, he told John Saunders, like this game isn't going to be close. And that's what bared out that entire game. The line I wish I would have wrote is if Matt rule doesn't get it done for Nebraska, they would lose their blue blood status. Because I think enough times passed to be able to say, you're no longer a blue blood. I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not sold on Matt Rule. And I'm not sold on Nebraska. <laughs> Why? Let's ask that 
dive into that a little bit. What has Matt Rule done aside from collect paychecks? He's still getting paid from Carolina. His buyout at Temple wasn't that strong. And he's getting a ton of money at Nebraska. And what does he I realize he hasn't played a game he hasn't coached a game yet for Nebraska, but I, I just don't see them breaking out of their shell of mediocrity. So so I look at Matt Rule and I he reminds me a lot of he's like a and I, I mentioned this in an article for Feral Sports. He is to me the the modern day poor man's Lou Holtz. He with Temple, he got them from being you know there was a time where Temple was like when we talk about people getting kicked out of conferences. Temple got kicked out of the Big East. Let's make sure we know that right now. Like that's all feasible. So when we're when we're seeing these stories of conference realignment and roulette. We are, we need to acknowledge it is possible. Temple got kicked out of there. Rule got Temple to back to back 10 win seasons and took them to finished in the polls. And, you know, this is the Temple program that would win one game a year that was completely atrocious. He then went to Baylor post. Art Bryles. And that was, I don't want to say a as nuclear as SMU. I mean, I don't think anything will ever approach SMU getting nuked with the death penalty. But Baylor wasn't too far from like radioactive state. And the fact that he went from one and eleven to eleven and three, a, 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 competed for a Big Twelve title and played in the Sugar Bowl. I think spoke volumes. Now, one of the things that concerns me with role, and I mentioned this, it's one thing to be a builder of a program because look, no one's looking to be the all-time temple coach. And with Baylor, obviously he had ambitions to be in the NFL. But, He's at Nebraska, and if Nebraska is a, a blue blood program like we're indicating it is, this isn't a job that you hop from. This is a job that you re, you if you're successful enough, you retire at. So, my thing is, and what he's never shown in his career is is he a long term sustainer, and that's the biggest question mark. If you know, outside of can he get Nebraska back to relevancy? Is Kenny then sustain that success long term? I think the biggest problem I have with Nebraska, and I think that's what led to their downfall. I don't think they ever should have let go of Bo Pelini. I don't think he was that bad a coach. And I think he was just starting to turn the corner and then they, they canned him. Well, I agree with that. And I don't think you get rid of a Bo Pelini and you bring in a Mike Riley. That was their mistake wholeheartedly. And the Scott Frost failure, well, I believe it was a guy I saw that said, hey, it's full, like 
fool's gold frost was that the, the the nickname that the huskers boards have they had they had a lot of good nicknames for scott frost by all accounts that should have been successful but that went so far south that isn't even funny you know that's kind of like i always say and when when we talk when a, when a team gets aggressive on the coaching front what is the ultimate reward and what is the ultimate downfall? The ultimate reward was when Georgia let go Mark Richt. And Mark Richt's a Hall of Fame coach. Okay. That was risky as all hell. It, it added to that, you know, they brought in Kirby Smart, who was never a head coach before, but his resume is a is a defensive coordinator for four of Nick Saban's national championships, and he's a Georgia guy, there was a risk there. That's probably the ultimate reward because I would argue Kirby Smart's the top coach in college football today. That's the ultimate reward. The ultimate failure is Nebraska because you can't just get rid of a Bo Pelini. And think about it. When you look at Bo Pelini's tenure at at Nebraska, he was winning nine games every year. Every year, you look, nine and four, ten and four, ten and four, nine and four, ten and four, nine and four, nine and three. Darn. He he he's consistently good. They fired him for Mike Riley, who look, Mike Riley's as accomplished as a coach as you can have in the game. You know, at all levels of the game, different leagues. He was a perfect fit for Oregon State. But Oregon State expectations are vastly different than expectations at Nebraska. And I think that led to a downfall. The fact that Pelini was able to clean up the situation that Bill Callahan created and then keep them at a 9-10 win. Look, they competed in Four conference championship games there that I'm still I think they learned their lesson I don't think you're going to see a Bo Pelini uh, uh, thing happen in Nebraska for a long time but this Matt Rule thing has to be successful because they've gone way too long being outside the national relevancy scope they're going to be on the outside looking in so that secures – it's all of our secure ones. So we're going to help accelerate and fast-track this a little bit for the listener. I'm going to look at the next two categories as a whole, Scott, and because there's we'd like to t- tackle a couple more things here today um, on the podcast. So these are programs that are not blue blood but I say that their status is borderline. And I identified five programs and I'm going to mention the five programs and, and I'll give you my thoughts after I hear your thoughts on them. So here are the five programs, Scott, Penn state, Tennessee, LSU, Georgia, and Florida state. These are five borderline programs. What's your thoughts? I think those are all teams with potential to be blue bloods, but I just don't see it happening right now. I, I, I can't label Penn State a secure blue blood. Well, they're not a blue blood, so they're not, they don't even have status as a, they are not a blue blood in my thing. 
Right. I, I think they're all good schools. I think they're all good programs. Uh, I think we'll get a good feel for FSU and the Mike Norvell era this season. Uh, he's he's got some some blue chips that are going to be starting, and he's got some he, some good transfer portal players. It'll be interesting to see. I think the LSU game is going to be monumental for them, which That's, I picked that- them to win. The big thing for me with with that LSU-Florida State game, I think that's going to be a game that's going to have a lot of legacy on the line. And what I mean by that is, and we're going to touch base on this in our week one episode, but I'll touch on it a little bit lately here. Mike Norvell and Brian Kelly have a lot on the line. Brian Kelly is as accomplished as a head coach as one can be. His status of getting into the College Football Hall of Fame, unless he totally blows it with something off the field, is about as secure. The only thing missing from his resume, there's two things. Winning a New Year's Six Bowl game, if you look, he's never won one, and a major national championship at the highest level. He has some Division II national championships from Grand Valley State. The, he didn't. LSU did not pry him from Notre Dame to go ten and three or eleven and two. They expect to be in the national championship game. And when you consider Saban, Les Miles, and Edwards run the last three head coaches of LSU all won national championships. That's the standard. Norvell said at ACC Media Days, you know, Bobby Bowden's the standard. But he hasn't gotten to that standard yet. And he what revived his Florida State career was a week one win against LSU last year at the Superdome. He was he has a, that Yes, there was a lot of things that bounced his way in that game. He has as much talent as any team in the country. Some argue the best edge rusher or defensive lineman in the country in Jared Verse. Two really good wide receivers, especially with Keon Coleman coming in from Michigan State. Uh, uh, Jordan Travis is up for Heisman Trophy considerations. That's that's a great game. That is going to be a great game. But from a blue blood status with these five, Penn State, I think, flirted with blue blood status in the 90s. And that's when national title leaders were around six, seven. Penn State had two. You know, Penn State's one of the winningest programs. And I think had Penn State cashed in a championship between now and then, they would probably be in that situation. In a, in, in a, is a blue blood. You know, they have four teams all time it, that went undefeated but didn't get national championships. 68, 69, 73, and 94. You know, yeah. they have they have I believe they are the third or fourth winningest program since World War II. 
Um, that that is a sh- in, you know their metrics bear it out. Their top ten in you know pull appearances, draft picks, all that. They have all the things together. The one thing that they're missing, why I couldn't give it to them, is the lack of national championships. Well, I think that they they've played well enough to be on that final rung. They've accomplished enough to get to the position that they might get blue blood status one day, but we're just not there yet. The other, the two other programs that may pique folks' interest on there is Tennessee and Florida State. For me, when you look at Tennessee, okay, they they've won. They've won a – they count the 1967 National Championship in their lore. That team went 9-2, and two, okay? They lost the – I believe the Orange Bowl that year. But since that point, they've only won one national championship. And it's not like Tennessee has been dominant in football. They're much like Penn State. Very consistently good. Um, Phil Fulmer got him the 98 title, but they couldn't beat Spurrier in a lot of those games. For me, I think they're right there. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big student on the history of the game. And General Nealon, who, who won him a lot of titles, won him four, I believe, four national titles out of the six that they have, you know, Again, what have you done for me lately is one of the things with Scott, because Robert Nealon's last national title was 1951. Well, you know me. I'm a big what-you-do-for-me-lately kind of guy. Yeah, and you also got to consider two of their national titles. Okay, they 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 won the title by by a service, like, like Lickenhouse is their 1967 selector. Dunkel is their 1940 selector. They both recognize those championships. So, and they lost bowl games that year. And a third one they lost a bowl game in was the 51, when they lost to Maryland in the Sugar Bowl. So for me, it's, I think they're, I, I consider, I always say Penn State and Tennessee are just mirror programs. You know, you can bet on consistency decade after decade, but you're missing championships. The other interesting one, Scott, and this will probably lead to a full out argument between you and I, and which will should shall entertain our listeners. I think Florida State's closer to blue blood status than Miami is. It, it, it's simply what that program was able to accomplish, and there's a lot more consistency with Florida State than there is Miami. And part of the reason I put Florida State at borderline is think of it like this. Florida State has appeared in more New Year New Year Six bowl games. Okay. Right. That than Michigan has. Think about that for a second. Florida State's a recent power. 
Mich- you know, Florida State's this recent power. Michigan is considered all and mighty this great, you know, all-time program. But Florida State's been to more of these high-end bowls. Florida State went 14 years in a row in the top four every year. Florida State had the courage in the 1990s to play the two toughest programs in the entire decade every year in Miami and Florida without fail. You you look at what, you know, I remember what Bobby Bowden said at Florida State's at his at at at, 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 um, at Florida State's golden anniversary in 1997, and he said, "What Florida State's done in 50 years is, is as much as some programs have done in 100 years." And I firmly believe that. I really do. You know, they've won. When you talk about pro, you know, and one of the strongest arguments is the sheer amount of bowl wins. I mean, you look at the programs, they have more bowl wins and they have more bowl wins than Miami, Ohio State, Michigan. That's, that's volume speaking. Okay. Um, well, I think when you look at Florida State, Bobby Bowden was a master. As Bum Phillips once said, he could take his in and beat yours in, or take yours in and beat his in. And he he just knew how to win. And he was a very respectable Southern gentleman. Um, I, I sort of cut my teeth in this business, learning from Bobby Bowden by interviewing him and having him work with me when I was a little cub reporter at Florida State in 1985. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him, and I have a lot of respect for the program that he built. Um, I I have to agree with you. They're probably closer to being a blue blood than Miami because Miami hasn't been relevant in 20 years. And you've got to think of this. And and here's a list of schools that 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 Florida State has more bowl wins than Clemson. And think about it. Clemson was getting two almost two bowl wins a year with, with them getting in the playoff. Uh Nebraska, Ohio State, Florida, Michigan, you know, Notre Dame, Washington, Miami. I mean, this is a pro- this is a program that, you know, when they said, hey, we are a big brand. We want to. We deserve this. And how they were talking about with the ACC stuff. Take them seriously. This is a program that delivers. It has delivered since the since the eighties. And you go. You know. You know, seventy nine season when Bowden got them to their first Orange Bowl. They haven't looked back since. They are one of the most consistent programs in the country and think about it how many in in scott if florida state had a kicker that could make kicks they're probably playing for they probably have a few more national titles that's the margin of error florida state is well i I think they had good kickers scott bentley was a very good kicker for them dan mowry was a good kicker my old client rich andrews was a good kicker 
back in the day. They just missed kicks. Yeah. I mean, the margin of error with Florida State is so razor thin. And look, I will say this. If Norvell gets some, realizes the potential of season and gets on a run, this is a program that they win a fourth national title. I don't know if it's borderline anymore for them because with such a short history, what's to their advantage is there's a more concentration on highly successful seasons. And I think that's what puts them over the top. I agree with you. We agree on that. I hate going against my alma mater, but Florida State definitely. I would be remiss if we didn't at least touch on the Georgia Bulldogs. I, you know, I really feel within the next decade, Kirby Smart's going to do something for that program that's going to put them into blue blood status. I really do. I I, I, I don't see how they are in a blue blood with before the decade's out. They have the second most bowl wins of all time. They, uh, they just won their fourth national title. I think when you look historically at them, you have some, I don't want to say bad valleys, but it's just, they're, it's, they're good, but they're not what, you know, what you would want to see from a blue blood. You'd love to see a little bit more on the resume than, than what they're showing. Um, I think that's the only issue with Georgia is they just need, I think, you know, by the end, they got a lot of things lined up. I just feel as I look at them, you know, what, you know, in between, you know, you look at Wally Butts, you know, Wally Butts had a great 40, you know, won a title in 42. You know, had a great team in 46. But you look in between 46 and 1959, a lot of bad football. You know, Vince Dooley took it over. And, again, he had to deal with Alabama and all that. And there there were some good years. There were some at years. He had his golden era at the beginning of the 80s. But after his golden era, he tailed off a bit. Ray Goff never really was that good. Neither was Jim Dunnan. Mark Rick flirted with it. And again, in my opinion, Rick's, you know, I believe Rick, Mark Rick just got into the college football hall of fame, yes. but Rick's problem is he never won the, the big one, regular, the big games regularly. And that's what doomed him And Kirby smart is. So I, I really believe another if they were to win a title, go for a th- and get the three peat this year, they're a blue blood. Like if I did this article next year at this time, I'd give them blue blood status. You know, I think if they go and they win, like say they're like twelve and two, they win some New Year's Six bowl games in a few after a few years, I think they're in. They're right there. They're literally yeah, looking. Yes, very much so. So well, let's we'll go to our final tier on this and what i said was access denied and on there is clemson miami and florida and scott 
explain to me, you know, outside of their amazing peaks, because I'll tell you what, Miami's resume is impressive with those five national titles and the two two runs that they had. But outside of that, it's a pretty dark time for Miami football. Well, you really can't say aside from that. That's a that that's blowing off a big chunk of real estate. I mean, that's five national titles, two Heisman's, uh, the bull wins that they had before Randy Shannon got here. Um, I, I think well, Miami. I mean, you go. Le- you go before the. You know the godfather, Howard Schnellenberger, showed up. The Miami program leaves a lot to be desired. Was in ruins. And Schnellenberger rose it up from the ashes and started the program again. But for me... Look, I represented Lou Saban, so I got to know him pretty well. May he rest in peace. Yes. And, he, and he told me about he was the guy that was supposed to be Schnellenberger, but it just didn't work out for him. The athletic department did not give him enough time to build that team into a winner. He started it all. They say Schnellenberger's the godfather of UM football because he got the first national title. Well, guess what? Lou Saban recruited Jim Kelly to come to Miami. East Brady kid. My thing is, you know, there, there's, you know, Andy Gustafson was a longtime Miami coach in the 50s. You know, and Charlie Tate was able to find Ted Hendricks, who's, in my opinion, one of the greatest players of all time. You know, to me, it's just you look at the schedules and it's not all Miami's fault. You know, they were an independent and you're, you're looking, you know, they're playing whoever they can get to come to Miami or wherever they can go. Some of them are pretty good. Now, to me, it's just when you're, when you're talking blue blood, you should be able to, in, in, and this is why the certain programs that I've selected as Blue Bloods and the and ones that aren't, I can pick any decade and I can say, oh, this is when they were nationally relevant. This is what they did and whatnot. For Miami, there's a lot of football that they weren't nationally relevant for. And because of that, and because of a near two-decade time frame, we've marched on from that uh, second era of like that renaissance where they, it's it, it's primarily been the question is is the U back or anything i don't think the U's been back since two, you know every time they, they get like like that signature win whether it was against the sam bradford bliss oklahoma or they demolish notre dame you know you can you can pick them out scott they've never been able to seize the moment and blue bloods find a way to seize the moment and string together great seasons. I think it's unfortunate with Mark Richt with his health issues. I think if Rick was fully healthy, 
I think Miami's back. I really do. And that's going to be one of my, I think, one of my coaching what ifs. What if Mark Richt was healthy? Because I feel a healthy Mark Richt, Miami's a 10 or an 11 win program right now. I think Mark Richt was heading in the right direction before he retired. But I don't think he really accomplished as much as he could have after Al Golden was fired. Yeah. Um, And and of course, it takes us into Manny Diaz, or as they refer to him in Miami, Danny Mias. (laughs) And now he's your defensive coordinator at Penn State and doing a tremendous job. He should have won the Broyles Award. Yeah. yeah, he's good. He's I don't see him staying in Happy Valley for long. No, he's a head coach. He, he He's going to be a head coach somewhere. Oh, yeah, he, I, I think he's going to take a Brett Venables approach and build his resume up. I don't think he's going to jump right away. I think he's going to be at Penn State for a few more years. But I think he's going to do what Brett Venables did if, if he I think he knows Penn State's on to something, and if he can get Penn State over the top, why can't Manny Diaz get a really high-profile job again? And I he think that's the that, he can get that high-profile job. I think he's it's, he's about four or five years away. He's not going to leave for just any job. No, he's not going to leave for Temple or Rutgers. He's he's going to leave for a big school. Oh yeah, there's there's no doubt. Now. What are your thoughts on Clemson in Florida getting my access denied? Uh, Clemson really has not had that body of work that you can say over a period of 40 to 50 years has been dramatically impressive. I don't think they've really done a lot with the, Save the last five years or so when they've been rather dominant. But that's a smaller body of work. That's like Georgia. Georgia's had had a body of work that in the short term has been phenomenal. But when you open up the time frame and you, you, you go back in years, there's really not much there. So I, I don't even think they're on the cusp. I don't, I don't think they're going to have a good season. My thing with Clemson, and I think they're closer to borderline, is you look at, and, you know, Frank Howard is an all-time coach, and he's in the Hall of Fame for a reason. But there's just, he had a lot of mediocre football. I mean, you go from, at the tail end of Frank Howard's run, there's like a decade where they were barely a 500 ball club. You know, Jess Neely is is another Hall of Famer, but again, it's you're getting back into the 30s. After Frank Howard, you know, Charlie Pell really got that uh, uh, program going, and he attempted to resurrect Florida. And Danny Ford coached in that infamous Gator Bowl that uh, Charlie Bauman got a sucker punch in. But And Danny Ford was right there. And I think Danny Ford could have 
gotten Clemson to the next level, and I think there was friction in that program, I would always say that 81 Clemson team, especially defensively, very underrated. Now, the rub I have is if if I go to any decade, if, if I had this conversation 10 years ago, I wouldn't, I, Clemson wouldn't even be entertained. While, Cle, while Dabo's done some amazing things, what, seven consecutive playoff bursts, two national titles, two national title appearances? <laughs> Excuse me. I need a little bit more consistency. Now, Florida, and this is what I, I put in the article, and I'll, I'll stand by this. You take away Steve Spurrier and Urban Meyer, all Florida is is South Carolina, and that's it. To me, that's wow. not good enough to be a blue blood. Because I agree with that. You take away those two, all they have is a program, okay, is four division championships. That's no better than South Carolina. That is not a blue bud. I know some people like to prop Florida up. You're not going to get the prop from me. Take out Chris Leak and, and Tim Tebow. Danny you know, Warfel. Those two players. Yeah, but he didn't win a national championship. Danny Warfel did in 1996. Won the Heisman Trophy, too. I said corrected. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Florida needs to be a lot more consistent before they even think about wanting to be a blue blood. So before we jump to the next segment, Scott, um, anything you want to conclude here with the blue blood conversation? I think Miami's a lot closer than you think to reaching blue blood status. I, I think they're in the same boat as Florida State. And I, I think that the Mario years are going to tell uh, a tremendous story as to how this program is going to evolve. It's either going to go forward or it's going to go backwards. It's not going to stay stagnant. They're not going to be five and seven or six and six forever. They, they're, they're getting great players. They're recruiting well. Um, I, I just see them as, as, as a Florida state, um, a very good comparison to a Mike Norvell in Florida state. So my closing thoughts are for those fans that are, you know, Penn state, Tennessee, LSU, Georgia, Florida state. The reason I say borderline is it's not much for you guys to claim that it's there. The accomplishments of, of your programs speak for themselves. I think, like I say, Georgia is probably going to be one before the decades out in LSU. You know, you have a long drive here between Charlie McClendon and Nick Saban. Get that probably why they're where they're at. And in between, uh, Charlie McClendon and Paul Dietzel, you have another little run there. But LSU is built to become that modern blue blood. That's going to make that. Tennessee, again, has refound itself. 
And really all Tennessee got to do with Heupel is realize its potential. Penn State, I think, is on the precipice of something special. I could see doing this article in five years or maybe 10 years where some of these programs are up there. For the ones that are not secure, I really feel it's just own your status. Notre Dame, own your status. Michigan, own your status. Texas, Nebraska, own your status. Demonstrate why you guys are considered blue bloods, win the big games, win the championships. I'd love to have much more secure blue blood programs. Um, I think with like programs like in Scott, this is where we'll agree to disagree. I don't, I don't, I'm not a big crystal ball guy. I was not a big crystal ball guy up at Oregon. I don't, I'm still not one in Miami. I know he's a great recruiter. He's going to coach himself out of some big wins. He's going to, he's going to get them better. I'll get, I'll give you that, but I don't think he's going to realize the potential that, I think Miami fans have for them. And I think Clemson, I think the question becomes now that this, there's this shifting landscape, where's the best fit for your program? Do you want to go into the sec where, Hey, you're going to, your, your games are going to be with Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, all that every year. Are you, you know, one of the things that was interesting with this expansion carousel is okay where do you fit in the pecking order or are you better off in the big 10 for the long run so it's going to be interesting with them in florida you know no more jim McElwain stuff okay i'll leave it at that so that's been the blue blood segment so coming up on our next segment we have our my colleague here had some interesting takes on coach pride stay tuned And we're back here for Current Bones. So this is a segment that we try to talk current college football. And if you haven't seen the article, you might want to check it out. It was an article done on Mike Farrell Sports by my colleague, the living legend here, Scotty Solomon, about Coach Prime. And Scott didn't even hesitate when he was on the uh, Dogs podcast on, for the mothership here for the Dogs Media Network, he doubled down on Deion Sanders failing. He even went to say, and Scott, please correct me if I'm wrong, 1-11 for Colorado this year or not winning a game? I can't remember which. I, Either predicted, way, I predicted that they won't win a game. Either way, you got, you got it there again, folks. So I would – highly suggest checking the article out but scott break this down for me why prime. it's all you prime, prime is all ego okay Deion sanders is in it for Deion sanders he's not a team player never was never has been okay that's why when his contracts were up he always went to the highest bidder instead of trying to build continuity with with the team when he left the Yankees to join the Atlanta Falcons, he said, this is the last time I leave a bunch of winners for a bunch of losers. That's Deion Sanders. That's the 1989 Deion Sanders. And it's stuck with him. He walks into Colorado and tells the teams, 
players that have left their blood and guts on that practice field and tried to live up to what a Colorado Buffalo is. He told them they weren't good enough and they should transfer out. Who the hell is he to make that decision? I realize he's the head coach, but you don't come in with a summary execution and get rid of your players like that. And he's going to pay the price for that for the next four or five years. They're going to have no continuity. I give him credit for flipping Cormani McLean from Miami. He was the number one cornerback. And they're going to pair him with Travis Hunter. But Dion, you're nothing but an egomaniac. You're a narcissist, and you'll always be that way. So my biggest fear with what Dion's doing at Colorado is if he is successful, and I'm going to throw that caveat if this is a copy, this is a copycat um, environment. What does that mean for other teams and other programs? I look at, and I'm literally looking at the depth chart of Colorado at the moment. And you usually, when you see a depth chart, you usually see maybe a few key transfers. I have followed this sport for four decades, since the 90s. I have never seen a depth chart with so many transfers, so much of this, this blows my mind. I, you know, we all gave Lane Kiffin the Portal King title, okay? Then he abdicated it to Lincoln Riley. If Dion's successful with this, he is the Portal King emperor because I don't know if anyone else could ever pull this off because this is this is one that we're going to be studying for a long time i think with dion you're going to see that they're going to have no chemistry this year i mean players are trying to study each other's names forget the playbook they just don't know who each other who their locker mates are that's a big problem uh to get rid of 50, 60 players in one shot and then bring in bodies to replace them, you're not going to accomplish much. You know, as one insider said, the circus is coming to town and two things about the circus, they take all your money and then they leave town. So Colorado is in a lose-lose situation. If Dion loses... He'll be labeled the loser and that he can't win at the power five level. If he wins by some chance a couple of years down the road, he's bolting. Colorado's not his dream job. Where do you think his dream job is, Scott? Florida State. Do you think that job's going to open with Norvell? No, not at all. It, it, not for the next five to ten years. I also, I also think Dion's got some health problems with the blood clots in his legs, which are going to take a lot from him. And I wish him well in, in, in that endeavor. But 
The problem with Dion is, is he's not at full strength. I think what Dion, I think at the end of the day, I don't think Colorado's in a lose, full lose, lose situation. I think them getting to the Big 12 in this expansion carousel is a major win for that program. Even though I find it as a unilateral move, they secured their future. The Big 12 is going to be involved in a power conference perspective. And for that, Colorado's won massively in that regard. The thing that you got to take a look at with, with the Buffaloes is I, I'm really curious how Travis Hunter's going to play both sides of the ball. Kid is special, but now you're going this is this final season of the Pac-12. You know, this isn't like a like like a Pac-12 past where it was you can really flip this and make this happen. Like what USC did last year in Lincoln Riley's first year is an anomaly. This is a very tough league this year. And there's some teams I, I think they will beat. I think this is a three or four win team. They may get the five, but that's on there. I, I really think there's a lot of toughness. And I think a lot's going to happen when they play TCU week one. Um, I really like the receiving core. You know, if Hunter's as good as a both sides player, that's going to be fun. Jimmy Horn Jr. was a target I wanted from South Florida up at Penn State. And, I, and a lot of people thought that Joe Horn's kid was going to be a Nittany line, ended up going to Coach Prime. You look across, one of the one things that's consistent with Colorado is their offensive line is there's a few Colorado guys that are still sticking around. So you got some consistency there. It's going to come down to what the Shador Sanders does because it's a lot different playing in the slack and having time in the world and making plays and then playing Power 5, Pac-12 football, especially with their schedule. Um, defensively, they got a few pieces I really like in there outside of the secondary. I mean, we all know about Cormani uh, McLean and we all know about uh, Travis Hunter. Uh Derek McClendon II is another target. Of, I think if he realizes his potential with Coach Prime, he may b- find himself getting drafted by the NFL. I think he's kind of been underwhelming. He, I believe he started his run at Florida State. Um, and I think this is, I think he's going to play at a level that's going to help that program. But uh, like you said, you know, this is this is a major team overhaul. We saw what USC was able to do with it. They were successful. Like, there was that chemistry. But this is probably to the level that we've never seen and, pro- and hope don't see. This isn't good for college football. No. The, Pat Narduzzi from Pittsburgh hit it right on the head. He said, you coach the team that you inherit. You don't go and, out and try to rebuild the team. And I, and I, and I, and I agree. I agree to that point. 
I, I think you always want to try to get the best product you can on the field. But I think this is to the extreme of you, you, you did a wholesale change. I really felt that what turned me off with Coach Prime and Deion Sanders early was when he was uh, – his intro where they're live streaming it on social media. He's bringing in the, the, the suitcase and the luggage, and, and, and he's basically giving everyone the walking papers. Look, I understand in, from a college football perspective, like this is what happens, but I firmly believe firmly believe that should have been handled behind closed doors because I don't think he'd had this much attention on him. I, I, I think when a sheer number showed up, he probably would have earned it. Um, and there's probably another angle to look at it is look, he went in, he went guns a blazing and he, and he followed through on that. So in my opinion, it's, it's going to be an interesting I I think I don't think Colorado's his end point. I think he's going to get Colorado, and I think the Big Twelve might be a little bit easier of a go for him. I think he'll get him back to relevancy and consistency, but I don't think he he's destined to be there long term. Whether it's health reasons, whether the Florida State job does open up or not, I I, I firmly believe you know I don't think he wants to go to the NFL. I, I truly believe that. I think the I think if Dion was maybe five to ten years younger, he may have entertained it a little bit more. But I think he he enjoys what he's doing now um, in the college game. I just can't. I I, I firmly believe it's going to be an SEC job that opens up that he's going to want to take. Could it be at Alabama with Nick after Nick Saban? That's crazy to think about. If someone's going to laugh, I think that's a reach. That's a reach. But what what happens if that is his goal? You, you can't, you know, just because that's his goal doesn't mean it's a realization either. So I don't want people say Mike Farrell sports or college football dogs analysts thinks Dion's the next coach at Alabama. No, no, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is Coach Prime may be saying. That's the type of job he wants. And it's one thing to want something. It's another thing to actually get that thing. And I don't think he'll get that particular job. But I think he's looking at a job in the SEC. I doubt that he wants to go into the Big Ten. But I think that's where Prime's next move, if he wants to do a college football. I don't think his – I firmly believe Colorado isn't his last job, unless health – prohibits him from coaching. Prime really wanted that Auburn job. What did you, what did you, how did, how did, how did you glean that? What did you, what do you know about that, Scott? Uh, I read from other analysts and heard from people in the, in the business that he really wanted that job when, when Brian Harson was fired. And they thought that that he was going to go to Auburn. He wants to coach in the SEC. I mean, that's big-time college football. The the Pac-12 was big-time college football until it all got sold. But now it's the Pac-4. It's it's a four-pack. And (laughs) 
And I think that they have to realize that Dion's a character. He's got, he's very egocentric and it's all about him. He hadn't mentioned his Louis Vuitton luggage and his introductory press conference. Come on, give me a break. Be humble. Show some humility. But Dion's never done that. And he never will. I don't think so. I, and I don't think he will either. And that's, that's never going to, uh, to take off there. Um, anything else you want to bow tie on this, Scott? Uh, I'd like everybody to uh, go to MikeFarrellSports.com and look for the article on Coach Prime and uh, take a look at it. And uh, let me let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter at Scott Solomon, and drop me a line. So, so my current 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 piece is with another Pac-12 coach, and it's with Lincoln Riley, and I it's called the Lessons of Riley. And to me, I think I think Scott, you can agree when you when you look at a top ten list of top college football coaches, you're going to find Lincoln Riley in that top ten. Yes, Lincoln Riley is a superb coach. So. Sometimes as a writer, you're challenged to be to criticize and find holes in some of the best. And, you know, I was tasked of doing that. I think Riley's resume is being the modern day quarterback whisperer. When you look at what he's done with Jalen Hurts, uh, Heisman Trophy winners in Baker Mayfield and Lincoln Riley, not Lincoln Riley, Kyler Murray. You know, Caleb Williams just wanted he should be a first overall pick. And I think Malachi Nelson's coming in, who's who's, who's star studded. So just just a little bit of aspects to it is, you know, I, I hit on they need to schedule better. And I know schedules are done long term out. I know it's a low hanging fruit. But one of the things that I firmly believe in, Scott, you know, in your life when you competed as an athlete, if you played against inferior competition, when it came time to play someone at your level or above your level, you were never prepared because you weren't used to someone being able to challenge you a certain way. And I bring that up with the scoring defenses. Again, in his time in his career, he's faced 31 opponents who have finished 80th or worse in scoring defense, including 19 who were ranked 100 or worse. To me, you when you go against SEC teams or Big Ten teams that have a pulse, look at Tulane last year. They weren't afraid of the USC defense. And that is why you've seen some blowouts, some collapses, in some big games with Riley. I picked on the running game for it because, look, I'll be the first one to tell you, Scott, if the Miami Hurricanes, if someone told you they're going to average 180 yards a game, would you take that? Every day. As a Penn State fan, I would do the same thing. But here's the key thing. When you're writing, you need to find things that, Hey, this is a big statistical drop. Riley's teams 
in his first three seasons, averaged over 230 yards a game rushing when you do the average of those three seasons. His last three seasons, he's down to 180. And there's less and less touches for the running back. When you go against SEC teams, and it's not that we wouldn't take 180 yards a game or saying 180 yards a game is bad. I think I may have, I could have conveyed this better. When you're struggling in these big time games, you notice Riley didn't, couldn't establish the ground game against Utah. Granchu, Travis Dye had got a significant injury that ended his season and he wasn't able to compete. And Austin Jones isn't at that level. But if Riley wants to compete with these teams, he needs to be able to run the ball, run the ball effectively. The other points are around defense, and everyone talks about his weak defense. I'm telling you right now, Scott, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but you can't run the 3-3-5 stack in the Big Ten. Linemen will maul your defensive line to death, and that in turn will maul in the, in the linebackers who are in the next tier up. But he has to get better at getting defensive talent. Now, he's done a good job, and I indicated the defensive lineman that he had gotten in the transfer portal, uh, Anthony Lucas from Texas A&M, Bear Alexander from Georgia, Keon Barnes from Arizona. These guys are bigger. They're, they, they're at about 290, 295 each. Last season's USC's defensive linemen were, were around 260, 270. This isn't – this is – when you're going against bigger and physical lines, you need to have the personnel to be able to match that up. And the last thing I hit on in there is they got to recruit better defensively. I mean, when I was looking at the – again, recruiting rankings calculators, I used the 247 sports class calculator – and look, while it's not exactly uh, an exact science, what you you should glean from it is part of his defensive woes come in the fact he's not recruiting at the same level his the programs that are getting to the college football playoff and making national championship games have. You know, Riley's teams in his career have an average class score on the defensive side of the ball just under 180. When you look at Alabama, Georgia. Ohio State and Clemson, they're all over 200. With Alabama and Georgia above 240, that's 60 points graded higher. That is a significant gap. So when you take a look at that Riley article, one of the things that I hope you glean from it is when you're trying to criticize someone who's as elite and as successful as Riley, there are things that are just beyond general scopes that you need to be talking about. Scott, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are any other coach aside from Saban and those boys would love to trade places with Lincoln Riley right now. Oh, yeah. Lincoln Riley is clearly one of the best head coaches in college football. When you talk about his ground game going down to 180 yards per game, you got to remember that he's got somebody who can throw the pelota. He's got Caleb Williams back there throwing for 400 yards. So you're looking at 600 yards of offense. And, you know, if the University of Miami was averaging 180 yards on the ground, 
um, and Tyler Van Dyke was putting up those, those type of numbers, then you would be saying the same thing about Mario Cristobal. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a fun, fun article to handle. So while we talk about what we've written for over at Farrell, I think we owe our partners here at the at the Dogs uh, Media Network what we're working on for them. And I, I think if you're you're listening to this here in the third week of August, we're one week before week zero. I'm going to be getting my Penn State uh, preview out for college football dogs. Um, this is looking to be a very special season for the Nittany Lions. You know, I fo- I have followed the Nittany Lions closely since 1990. And I can tell you on, I can count on one hand where I said, I've gone into a season and said, this is a special season. And it turned out to be a special season. Now there's been a lot of seasons. I've said, this is going to be a special season. I've been disappointed. And then I've had seasons where I've had no expectations and have been pleasantly surprised. Last season's Rose Bowl, classic example, 2016's big 10 championship is another example. Um, For me, I, you know, I haven't seen a defense this talented for the Nittany Lions at all levels. Like, even the early 2000s with Paterno's teams with Pazlesny, Connor, Sean Lee, you know, the defensive lines with Jimmy Kennedy, Tamba Hulley, um, you know, the secondary always left something to be desired. This secondary has some extremely good talent. And all ACC uh, defensive backs, Storm Duck came in and couldn't crack it, so he transfers out again to uh, Louisville. You know, Kalen King is right there with Kool-Aid McKinstry. So what to check out on the Dogs Media Network for on the collegefootballdogs.com for me uh, for the, the week leading up to week zero. What, what to expect out of Penn State this year as a team preview? I will mention, I will link over to TJ Chapman, who is an, another national writer for college football dogs, his game by game prediction. And, you know, definitely give it, a, give it a read. It's going to be interesting. I'm excited. I hope, you know, when I look back at this uh, episode, and I'm hoping months from now that I am a in a good spot with Penn state going 11 and one or 12 and zero, and making my dreams come true. And I hope to get a new national championship hat. I'm holding my 1986 Penn state national championship hat. I'd like a new one. So look for that this week, Scott, what do you have for the dogs media network this week on college football dogs.com? My university of Miami preview is out. <laughs> And I also wrote an article on uh, Cameron Kitchens and Leonard Taylor being nominated on the watch list for the Ben Derrick Award. Uh, And also Matt Lee was nominated for the Remington. All right. And Scott, do you have any closing thoughts on our pilot episode? Well, I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and I hope you found it as informative and fun as we did in producing it. And we look forward to talking to you every week about what's happening in college football. All right. So to tease you for episode one, so hopefully you enjoyed this little teaser pilot that we put out there. You're going to – episode one is we're, we're dubbing the kickoff classics. So – 
we're going to talk about the current stuff that's going on. We'll review week zero games, especially involving Notre Dame and Navy at the, the Aer Lingus Classic in uh, Dublin, Ireland. We will take a look at, I believe, USC's playing San Jose State. We will talk about also one of the big uh, neutral site games with Tennessee and Virginia, the Battle of the Carolinas with North and South Carolina going at it. Coach Prime makes his uh, coaching debut for Colorado against TCU. We talk about uh, the Camping World kickoff, which is the crown jewel game with the LSU and Florida State. We will also go into our classic phone segment. We're going to talk about LSU and Florida State. We're going to talk about some of the great games in that rivalry. Uh, they've played. Oh, this will be the 11th matchup, so we're going to we're going to touch on several things. We'll, we'll bring up about we'll have discussions with Bobby Bowden. I hope Scott will have some more stories. We'll talk about LSU and what does Brian Kelly find his elusive title. We'll look back at some of the games that occurred in the 80s and early 90s. The second half of the Classic Bones segment, we talk about the kickoff classic games themselves, how this came about in the early 80s, how TV played as much involved with this as we see TV nowadays. We, we, we review some of the classic games from that era and talk in talk about some great performances and we we talk about uh a lot of the pros and cons with these games and then we'll, we'll tidy things up so hopefully you guys will enjoy episode one which shall be out next week i think we're our go live on that is a wednesday so hopefully you will enjoy that um scott any any other closing thoughts that you may have I'm just anxious for this college football season to get started. I've never looked forward to a season to start more than I feel now. I'm I'm always excited when it, when there's a season of hope. There's always something to listen to. So everybody's again, undefeated. Everyone's undefeated, and history is always going to be made. And with history always being made, there's always classic conversations to talk about. This has been Classic Bones' pilot episode. I'm Kyle Golick for Scott Solomon. Thank you for listening.